Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'm getting ready for the 4th of July with some food-related pieces. I'll be firing up the Barbie in a couple days. First, I'll check in with Chicago Magazine Dining Editor Amy Cavanaugh to talk about a new publication that highlights the 50 best things to eat in Chicago right now. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a non-food-related production, a reimagined version of The Who's Tommy?, Later in the show, I'll talk to the editor of a popular travel book series about some food stories in the book Gastro Obscura, and I'll catch up with a Chicago-based writer who did a deep dive on one of my favorite local dishes, Italian beefs. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Chicago Magazine wants to make you hungry. The publication just released its special summer edition titled Chicago's Best Things to Eat. The standalone publication, which is currently on newsstands, highlights 50 of the tastiest things currently on Chicago menus. I caught up with one of the people responsible for putting the edition together, Chicago Magazine Dining Editor Amy Cavanaugh. We talked about narrowing the list down to 50 items and what her thoughts are on the current state of the Chicago restaurant scene. So I feel like we have seen things improve in the dining sector when we look back at what it was like in 2020 and then changing to 2021 to last summer and to now. But there is some lingering fallout from the pandemic. What's your sense? Are are things close to the way they were pre-pandemic in the restaurant industry? I think we're definitely closer than we've been in a while. There are still, you know, some things that haven't gone back the way before. Um, You know, I'm still getting QR code menus. You know, sometimes I have to order on my phone rather than have the server come take my order. And, you know, some of that is still, you know, restaurants are having a hard time filling roles, you know, both front and back of house. But I think we've just seen so many new restaurants opening and people trying new things that it feels like we are closer to being back than ever before. Yeah, whether it's uh, Chicago proper or out in the suburbs, uh, I feel like restaurants are packed. Do you get a sense of the employment numbers are, are getting back to where they need to be? As a diner, it certainly feels like, you know, I'm seeing more staff in restaurants. Um, I, I know that some restaurants are still hiring for sure. You know, kind of a quick scroll through Instagram will show, you know, chefs are often looking to roles um, at restaurants of, of all price points and cuisines. It feels like it's moving in the right direction. So you're the uh, dining editor at Chicago Magazine, and uh, the publication just released this special edition, kind of a, a standalone titled Chicago's Best Things to Eat. What was the, the criteria for putting this together? Yeah, so we wanted to look at dishes both old and new. There was no, you know, kind of set time frame for how long a dish had to be on offer. Um, really, the only thing that it had to be was available a la carte. We wanted to make sure that diners could walk in to any of the restaurants featured 
and get that dish, you know, rather than have it be part of a tasting menu. Um, but yeah, other than that, the sky was the limit. And so I reached out to my team of freelance writers to ask them their favorite dishes in the city. We started from a list of 117 and narrowed that down to 50. Anytime you put something like this together, it has to be hard when you're narrowing it down to the, the final list. Yeah, it's a challenge for sure. So the photography is gorgeous. Don't don't look at the magazine on an empty stomach. I, I was uh, I was a little surprised by the the cover shot. Is that a fried bologna sandwich? It is. That is the fried bologna sandwich from Ocheval, where they make the bologna in house, and it's griddled, and there's American cheese and Dijon, and it is uh, very decadent and very delicious. The release is divided into to three simple categories, small plates, entrees, and desserts. And one of your recommended small plates are, are the oysters at El Chase Steakhouse. What makes these so unique? Uh, these are fabulous. Um, the restaurant has a large hearth in the dining room, so they cook a lot of their food over fire and they grill it. So these oysters are topped with smoked onion aioli, and bacon and grilled and so they are like french onion soup flavor with bacon and finished with crushed potato chips and so they are like decadent and crunchy and crispy and absolutely delicious i get an order every time i go to the restaurant and then that's on one end of the the spectrum and then as you mentioned kind of the the parameters were wide open so you even have some things that are super classic so even something like uh chili con queso yeah uh that is on the menu at um lonesome rose which is uh a tex-mex spot um that opened in uh, Logan, the original location, and then they just added a new Andersonville location a couple months ago. Uh, this is one of really my all-time favorite things to eat in Chicago. I love good queso, and this is the best, and it comes with like these just perfectly salted chips, and the cheese is just so rich, and it has peppers, so it has a little bit of spice to it. It's just, it's so good. I'm always craving that dish. Queso is like such a mystery. It seems so simple, but it, you know, it's hard to find a really great queso. It really is, especially, you know, outside of Texas, we're limited, but Lonesome Rose really delivers on it. So then the the middle portion is all about entrees. Was there like something specific you guys were looking for as far as the, an entree to include? Yeah. I mean, you know, deliciousness was the primary factor, uh, but, you know, also in, you know, putting this list together, it's like you also want to make sure you are appealing to diners who have, you know, various interests and, um, you know, even dietary restrictions. Like one of the dishes we have is from JT's Genuine Sandwich Shop, which is one of my favorite restaurants in the city. Fabulous sandwiches. But on my last visit, I had the beans and greens melt, which is the vegetarian take on their wonderful pork and green sandwich where they use white beans and caramelized onions and provolone and a chili aioli and it's so it's kind of you know really hearty grilled cheese almost and so really fantastic so you know we want to offer options like that for vegetarians um you know certainly something that anybody can enjoy and we you know also want to run the gamut of affordability and so you have a sandwich like that or the catfish po' boy that's available at Daisy's Po' Boy and Tavern, you know, which is $15. 
And then we have, you know, the stuffed cabbage from Mott Street, which is 30. And then, you know, the, the wonderful fried fish from Hai Su, um, which, which is a market price dish, but is something that's wonderful and shareable. And so we really want to hit, you know, a range of dishes that people can enjoy. Right. So many desserts. The one that really stuck out to me was what's called the the bear chocolate cake at Loaf Lounge. So this, for uh, listeners who are familiar with the FX series, The Bear, which is set in Chicago, uh, in season one, there's this uh, chocolate cake that's developed. So the chocolate cake in the show, did Loaf Lounge create that for them? Yeah. Sarah Mispega-Lusbader is a co-owner. She co-owns it with her husband, Ben, and she uh, worked on the show for its first season. And so she created all of the desserts that were featured in it from the donuts to this chocolate cake. And so now it's on the menu there. It is fabulous. Um, if you love chocolate cake, I have not had a better one in town. It's just so rich and, and so good. You can, you know, get it by the slice and it, it's just, it's a really fun dish. Are you a fan of the show, The Bear? I am. I'm halfway through season two right now. Um, it's I don't know if you've seen this season yet, but there are so many fun Chicago shout outs and cameos uh, for locals to look out for. You'll see a lot of restaurants on there that you've probably been to before. Oh, man, I, I binged that the first three nights, Amy. So, yeah, <laughs> I, that's like my favorite show. For sure. What's another dessert? Because I think there's more desserts than any other item in the in the release. Uh, yeah, and I wrote almost all of them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm a big fan of sweets. Okay, let's talk about the baklava milkshake from Ragadan, which is a new uh, little Middle Eastern falafel spot that's fairly close to my house, which is really exciting. He, The owner is Danny Swice, and he is doing... Um, falafels and burgers and things like that. But he's also making baklava milkshakes where he starts with vanilla gelato and he mixes in salted caramel and chunks of baklava. And it's just become this cult favorite item that I'm just, you know, everyone is talking about and I'm seeing people heading there to try it all the time. So that's a super fun one um, that's new. Another new one is the black marble pavlova from Valhalla, and that is um, located in Time Out Market, and it's pastry chef Tatum Sinclair, who is just an unbelievable talent, one of our city's best pastry chefs for sure, and honestly, picking one of her desserts for this was hard to narrow down, but the pavlova is, um, it's like black and white, and it's full of sesame mousse, and then she, you know, adds different things for the seasons, whether that's sorbets or berries or things like that. Um, it's a really elegant dessert and such a fun one that, you know, really feels outside the box. And then we also have, you know, more traditional desserts, such as the chocolate chip cookie from Sugar Moon Bakery in Logan Square, where she tops it with salt and she adds a little tahini to make it a little nutty and savory. Um, And it's just like a perfect chocolate chip cookie. Yeah, I've had that chocolate chip cookie. So good. And then as far as the pavlova, and you would know better than me because you go to way more restaurants, but that's something I don't don't come across too many pavlovas on menus. Is it pretty rare to find? you don't see that as often as you would like for sure i'm a i'm a fan of meringues um and desserts like that and so whenever i see a pavlova i'm gonna order it but yeah you don't you don't see that too often 
The special release is called Chicago's Best Things to Eat. It's on newsstands right now. Amy, thanks so much for making time to talk. Thank you. That's Amy Cavanaugh. She's the dining editor at Chicago Magazine. She's also the editor behind Chicago's Best Things to Eat. The special edition is on newsstands right now. You can find more of Amy's writing at chicagomag.com. And a quick reminder to check out the show's website, theartssection.org. If you've never been there, you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartssection.org. Also, if you have a question or suggestion, you can reach out to me by emailing me at gzydic at wdcb.org or find me on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at onairgary. You are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. The Who's Tommy, which came out in 1969, was the band's fourth studio album, a rock opera about Tommy Walker, the deaf, dumb, and blind kid who played a mean pinball. Six years later, a film version starring Roger Daltrey, Anne Margaret, and Oliver Reed was released. Then in the early 90s, a stage musical, developed in part by Pete Townsend, made its way to Broadway, eventually winning five Tony Awards. Now 30 years later, Goodman Theatre, along with some of the original creators, have reimagined The Who's Tommy. And there's excitement. The production just opened, and its run has already been extended twice. It's now going until August 6th. We'll turn to Carrie first. Would you say this new production is vastly different from some of those previous iterations? You know, I have never actually seen it on stage, so I'm going to have to mostly frame my comments in the form of how it differs from the film, which I did finally rewatch after many, many years of not seeing it recently. Um, but whether one is coming to it without having seen the previous stage version or not, based on my own experience, I'm going to say you will have a fine, fine time at this production. Um, it's sort of darker in some ways, both in terms of the color palette. I think the focus in the story, at least from what was in the film to the stage production, isn't quite so much in the whole cult of celebrity, the shiny, happy people kinds of you know uh, ideas of celebrity worship that were so embodied in the film. To me, this feels more like the journey of Tommy to fully reintegrate. We have the earlier versions of Tommy played as at, at four and ten after the traumatic incident that he, you know, the horrifying traumatic incident he witnesses that turns him deaf, dumb, and blind. And it really, to me, feels like the musical is structured so that we're getting that story. Now, um, I'll defer to Jonathan as to how it might differ from previous stage incarnations, but I found that it w- it very much feels like its own artifact, and I was just very struck by 
all the seamless integration of some, you know, fairly complex technical elements that to me did not overwhelm the central story. Um, I mean, it's still a spectacle. It is still spectacular in many, many senses of the word. But I, um, I really feel like that more intense, dark, personal story is foregrounded here in a way that I don't really think it is in the film. I'm very curious, Jonathan, what's your take on this? Right. Well, I'm first I'm going to jump on the point you just made of the brilliant integration of very complex design elements and uh, and the performances, choreography, uh, everything really meshes perfectly, and it is complex. And uh, I, I'll say a bit more about that uh, a, a little bit later on. I want to uh, second what you said. I think those who know and love the iconic music uh, from Tommy will not be disappointed by this ferociously energetic new production. <laughs> it's a show of nonstop motion and high volume, which obviously intends to boogie its way to Broadway as quickly as possible. <laughs> and it certainly has the quality and size to make that journey with a talented cast of nearly 30 and a nine-piece band. It's important to say that the director, Des McAnuff, was this is the same person who adapted Tommy for Broadway 30 years ago. He's in charge again, and he has reconceived the storyline. He had nothing to do with the movie, so it's different in, in, right. in uh, several ways from the movie. But he's also reconceived the storyline for this production versus 30 years ago, chiefly near the end, chiefly in the last, let's say, one quarter of the show which has always been the weak narrative part of Tommy, both in the original album and in the movie and in the first Broadway production. Uh, McAnuff has worked closely with Tommy's uh, composer and author, Pete Townshend, one of the original members of The Who, but they've only made things different. They've made the end different, not really better or less vague. They've said it someplace in the near future when the hero would be more than 80 years old, <laughs> uh, and they've given it slightly fascistic overtones. But you know what? I'm going to be the first to say that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> the story is not why people love Tommy, except in the very broadest sense of a boy who, uh, like Harry Potter, defies the odds. And, you know, up to the ending, up to that part, Des McAnuff, as director and co-author of what they call the Book of the Music, is you know confined by the music itself. He can't say to Pete Townshend, okay, go out and, you know, rewrite the entire last one quarter of it. New music, new words, new everything. He can't do that. So he has to work with what he has. And up to the ending, he has done an excellent job of using staging to fill in the storytelling blanks that simply don't exist at all in the songs and lyrics of the show. For example, it's a very carefully worked out World War II opening scene. Mm. We get in detail the backstory of Tommy's mom and dad and what happens. Or the scene in which the 10-year-old Tommy first discovers a pinball machine. And this is completely missing in the album. You're not going to get that at all unless you read the program, you know, you know the, the mm -hmm. album notes. So that's, that's one of the strengths, except for the very end, which is still kind of, kind of fuzzy. Uh, what's it actually about? What's the ultimate point? I don't know. But up to that point, it's really a brilliant use of, of staging and, and acting out without words, uh, dancing, performing, miming, 
the necessary actions of the story. Oddly, you never see a pinball machine in any literal way. I loved but that. I have the, to say, I think that was one of my favorite choices that but, they made. But the entire physical production is a pinball machine. Yes. <laughs> right, right. The scenic and lighting and projection designs are constantly changing, flashing, the kaleidoscopic, and the choreography by Lauren Latero is the same. Not so much formal dance as people in constant athletic motion, turning, whirling, jumping, marching, sliding, lifting. The show's dazzle and energy are overwhelming, and as you pointed out, Carrie, all the pieces of the production mesh, with a special shout-out, at least for me, to excellent sound design by Gareth Owen. Absolutely. You know, so often I find in uh, rock operas, there tends to be, the louder is better. This is certainly loud. If, If you're sensitive to noise, you may wish to bring earplugs, but it's not without nuance. It's not just an overwhelming wall of sound. It is very carefully thought out to play upon us, as, as sound and rock music does, uh, to sort of tickle the, the little backs of our brains where these emotional centers are, uh, whether it's exhilaration, fear, whatever it is that Tommy is feeling, I think is very beautifully captured in this sound design. And again, I sort of liked the fact that the color palette, that again, I have to compare to the film because I did not get to see the show 30 years ago, um, is, is a little bit more subdued. It almost, at points, feels like we're in, you know, Orwell's 1984. Uh, you know, I, I felt there were little, almost hints of, like, Weimar Cabaret in, the, in some of the darker, you know, sort of settings. And that plays out in the costume design, which tends to be a little bit of a duller palette. But then the, cup, the flashes of color really pop. The color yellow, in particular, as I'm sure you noticed, Jonathan, there's a yellow balloon that the young Tommy is holding. Yeah. And then the grown-up Tommy, when he's entered his full, you know, messiah status, has this beautiful yellow jacket. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, about the Goodman Theater's latest production, a reimagined adaptation of The Who's Tommy. Can we talk about the star power, though, of Ali Louis Bourgeois, I believe? I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name, but I'm sure we will all soon know how to pronounce it. He plays the adult Tommy Walker. I had not seen him previously on stage except in Leolina, the Goodman's Owen space, earlier this year, where I thought he was just fine. I had no idea how hypnotic and charismatic this performer is, and I truly think it's a star-making performance for him. What did you think about that, Jonathan? I, I think so also. Uh, as, as I noted earlier, I think the entire ensemble is, is uh, um, very, very strong mm-hmm. and remarkable, and it includes several people who have you know, quite distinguished Broadway credits. Uh, for example, Adam Jacobs, who plays uh, Tommy's father, Captain Walker, mm-hmm. and, and Mr. Walker, who has a long Broadway resume, including uh, starring as Aladdin in Disney's Aladdin, you know, and he played the king in The King and I out of right. Drury Lane, uh, uh, you know, within within the last year, at the beginning of last season. So it's a, it's a very, very high-powered cast all the way, and I agree, this could be a, a star-making role. Right. And, the, and you know, the younger actors who play the, the earlier incarnations of Tommy, and of course those are double cast since they are children, but also, you know, just very wonderful integration of them with the adult Tommy. Um, and yeah. very, I thought very good use of the mirror, you know, the going through the mirror, the, the idea of, like, confronting your past, confronting your past trauma, 
that's beautifully encapsulated and simply done with, with the mirror effect. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it is spectacular, but then there are these moments of simplicity that I think, you know, really help hook you into the story, such as it is. I agree with you. The ending is, is as, it, as it has always been, is a, a wee bit on the fuzzy side, but who cares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to bounce something off of you, and I suspect your reaction won't be the same as mine, and perhaps because I, I'm, a, I'm a few years your senior. Um, you know, I, I must say that the, the Who's Tommy struck me, despite all the pizzazz, struck me as a very old-fashioned show. Now, that's an observation, not a criticism. Nothing wrong with a good old-fashioned sure. show. And I'm not sure why. Perhaps it's because the music is the music of my youth, my long-ago faded youth. Right. Maybe that's the Perhaps it's because I, well, the story... You know, I think part of it is we forget how much... And I think it's certainly true for the Beatles, but I think also true for a lot of the British invasion bands, including the Who. They were coming out of music hall tradition. You know, there is that sort of showbiz. Yes. Uh, yes. That you know, and I think some of that is present in this. So I don't think it's just that you know that that you're. Uh, I, I think you're right. Let me put it that way. Um, the story, you know, is set in the uh, coming in out of World War II. You know, so that's I think a lot of what. I took away, and of course, maybe I'm out of my lane here because I'm not a British person who was alive in post-World War II London, but the idea of the war is over, everyone's supposed to be so happy, and yet, you know, that there's still that, that this, this darkness. You know, we forget that Britain still, you know, it wasn't like victory in Europe happened and then everybody just, you know, and then right away there was everybody running around in brightly colored clothes on Carnaby Street. No, there was this long period of rationing. There was a long period. Yes. Not that any of this is directly referenced. It's not a history lesson. I don't mean to get that idea. But I feel like it's present in some of the, the darkness that I previously mentioned, you know, particularly at the beginning of it. You know, this is not a flashy home. The Walkers have a very modest home. Um, you get the sense that this is not, you know, a, a neighborhood that's flush with new money or anything like that. And I thought that was sort of an interesting you know, a little bit of a subtext under there. And so in that sense, yes, it would make sense that some of the music, or the story, I mean, should also maybe reflect a bit of that old-fashioned quality. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, Jonathan, but it's what it I've does. been thinking about. It, it does, and, and uh, I particularly liked your comments about the, the color palette of the sets and costumes, which is true. Uh, and this is in contrast to the film version, you know, directed right. by Ken Ken Russell, and uh, the height of the height <laughs> and of the more is always more Russell. Right. I think <laughs> more is more. Right, the height of the psychedelic era. So it, right. was, it was nothing if not flashy and and colorful. I had that re reaction. Uh, you know, the show gets certainly gets by by wonderful, wonderful flash and pizzazz, but it it also occurred to me. You know, what is its pertinence for today and other than the reasons of let's revive a big commercial hit and let's win ourselves the best revival of tony award i don't think there's a viable reason in in terms mm -hmm. of today's society or politics or what's going on to revive the who's tommy right now but that being said i am very 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 happy that i saw it and i have nothing but praise for the wonderful company and the, the way they put it together you know, it's interesting. I, I may be mentioning this because I just saw a very fine revival of uh, Stu's musical Passing Strange at Theo Ubiquay on Howard Street in Evanston, which is a building's Roman about a young man 
trying to find his musical voice and his artistic voice going from California to Europe. Um, and that, too, I think in some ways has sort of an old-fashioned quality to it in terms of what the story is. I'm wondering if perhaps, again, this, this thing that I referenced earlier about the idea of looking a little bit at the reintegration of a traumatized person with their earlier selves and trying to make that whole isn't one of the things that's kind of pushing this a little bit. Um, one thing I find interesting is that uh, I don't think that this was talked about a great deal. I don't think he ever even talked about it himself until his 2012 memoir came out. But Pete Townsend himself was a victim of, of physical and sexual abuse in that memoir. And I certainly, we're not buddies. I'm not talking to him. I don't know if this is the impetus or not. But it does yeah. occur to me that perhaps that focus is something that has taken on new importance since he himself has written about this over the last, you know, 10 years or so. Um, and I'm wondering if that might be what they're hoping people will take away. You may or may not find yourself responding to that, as I did, um, because I think, again, this is a show mostly about the music, mostly about the incredible kinetic choreography of Lauren Lataro. I did get to interview her, as well as Sylvia hernandez Stasi from Chicago's famed Actors Gymnasium, who at one point did help them bring in this short but really effective circus <laughs> trapeze moment. Um, and one of the things I think I like is that yeah, the movement itself feels so organic and so just so generative of from the people on stage. It's not like you're watching a dance break. You are watching this embodiment, right. Right? right? You know, it's not like, and here's the here's the big 11 o'clock number. This is we, We've talked about it being old-fashioned, but it ain't that old-fashioned. Uh, and just the ways in which they were turning the bodies of the young Tommies on stage, you know, kind of really turning yeah, them into they, hogs. Was, I mean, there's just some really stunning they, smart they moments like that. They were literally being tossed around. I don't oh, yeah, yeah. I don't mean like footballs or ragdolls, but um, they were, you know, very capable and... I would say courageous young performers. Oh, yeah, and it's—I mean—they always do this with younger performers. But I'm like, you know, double cast. But I'm like, they, they, you know, they, they are earning—they're earning their pay in this part. It's not a; these are not cute moppet roles by any means. And right. just the stillness, you know, I think there's something about if you can be interesting to watch. I've talked about how kinetic it is, but then there's like this still, almost dead-eyed pain that radiates, you know, you know, radiates from these, these younger versions of Tommy in particular that I felt read really, really well at the Goodman. Um, and that's hard to do. It's, it's hard to be fascinating in stillness, right? And I imagine if you're a younger performer, it's even harder, you know, to just trust that you don't have to do anything, just, just focus, and we will be drawn to you. So I found that pretty admirable as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning the Goodman Theater seats 850 people. It is by far the most intimate venue in Chicago you're at which you are going to see a full-scale work of musical theater. Right. And, uh, and, and perhaps uh, worth trying to get tickets for that reason alone. All right. Sounds like two pretty strong recommendations. The Who's Tommy continues at the Goodman Theater through August 6th. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, you're Gary. Welcome. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm free. We'll get back into our food theme this week with an inside look at a popular travel food guide. The book 
Gastro Obscura highlights some of the most fascinating food stories and local delicacies from all over the globe. The publication comes from the travel website Atlas Obscura, which was established in 2009 and has grown tremendously over the past decade. You've likely seen one of the company's Atlas Obscura travel books in your local bookshop or scrolling through Amazon. A few years ago, the organization launched a food site called Gastro Obscura, an online publication dedicated to exploring unique stories about food. And now there's a book version. The online publication of Gastro Obscura was kind of intertwined with the book from the start. We knew we were going to make a book uh, as we started the Gastro Obscura project. Both of those things flowed out of Atlas Obscura. This is Dylan Thuris. He's the co-founder and creative director of Atlas Obscura and the co-author of the book Gastro Obscura. I caught up with Thuris to talk about some of the compelling food stories he uncovered while working on the book. With something like this that's global in scale, did you and your co-author, Cicely Wong, go into this with a a mission statement or a a set of guiding principles uh, as far as what you were looking for? Yeah, definitely. You know, this book started in a lot of ways in the same way that Atlas Obscura started and with a lot of the same principles, which was around this idea of wonder being found kind of wherever you're open to look for it and that that doesn't have to be you know far away it could be really in your own backyard and it's sort of about how you go about telling stories in the case of Alice Obscura it's about stories of place and in the case of Gastro Obscura it's stories of of food and uh, drink and restaurants and so you know it was a similar idea and we began the process in a similar way which is reaching out to our community of uh, people who are all over the world uh, yeah, and love sharing sort of the things that make uh, where they live interesting and unique. And so we got a bunch of submissions about different interesting uh, foods, dishes, ingredients all, all around the world. And we kind of collected those and mapped them uh, and then said, okay, so where, where, where do we want to go deeper? Where do we want more? And then Cecily and I uh, sort of basically 50% of the book came in in sort of that tip form, and then we, we worked on those. And the other 50% we went out and kind of found uh, uh, and, and said that this really belongs in the book. And it was a really fun process. It was, you know, we got to kind of uh, taste and experience uh, a number of these things along the way. And so it's been about four years in the making. Yeah, I'm really happy to have it out in the world. So I picked it up, gorgeous cover, I'm sure everyone's telling you that, and I started flipping through it, and I see the United States Midwest section starts on page 298, so I turn to that page, and then right at the top I see Malort with the title, One of the World's (laughs) Worst Liquors, and I think most Chicagoans would probably get a, a chuckle out of that. Have you tried Malort? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I think anyone who's gone out to a bar with friends in Chicago has probably been subjected to a surprise shot of Malort. <laughs> um, I kind of like it, honestly. I have a little bit of a taste for it, but uh, it's funny because outside of Chicago, people are like, what the heck is Malort? But in Chicago, it's obviously very, very familiar. And it's a good, actually, it's a good point about the book, which is, you know, it's, it's often that the things that seem normal to you, I, I grew up in Minneapolis and Minnesota. I have Scandinavian heritage, so I grew up eating a lot of pickled herring and lessa and even lutefisk, which is you know, dried fish soaked in lye and, uh, and sort of makes a fish jelly at the end. Uh, the things that you think of as sort of normal because they're part of your childhood, other people find interesting or unusual. And so it's all kind of relative to where you're from. And 
So for you, Malort is just part of the background of your life. Right, right, exactly. I interview a lot of uh, maybe visiting composers or musicians, and when I ask about their memorable moments in Chicago, Malort comes up more than you would think. And, yeah, and for us, for us, it's just yeah, it's just part of our our life. I don't really think about it too often. So I, I know there's, I think, over 500 entries in the book. Yeah. It would be impossible to, to pick a, a single favorite. But what are some of the food discoveries that really stand out? Yeah, there, there's, there's, you know, an, an enormous amount of stuff. But there's some stories that I really like. One, one that I like because it's a food that's very familiar to most people. But I was surprised by its origin story is about Pad Thai, uh, which is, you know, now almost as ubiquitous in uh, America as, like fried rice or or a slice of pizza. But what I didn't realize is that uh, Pad Thai was not some kind of long-held heritage dish of Thailand, but was really invented uh, in the late 1930s, early 1940s by Plak Sibon Sankram, which was, he was the prime minister and military dictator of Thailand. And he basically wanted to create um, more of a, a cohesive national state and so he came up with these 12 edicts, including around language and how people should dress. And they were pretty oppressive. I mean, they were not particularly uh, kind to the many different uh, ethnic populations that lived in what was then called Siam, and he renamed to Thailand. Uh, but one of the other things he did was he said, we've got a new national dish. Everyone's going to eat it. It's called Pad Thai. Uh, interestingly, it's made from Chinese noodles. Um, and, and, you know, it said that, that he's something he probably grew up eating, but he sort of uh, just declared that it would exist and that he wanted everyone to eat noodles. There were some practical reasons for this. Rice noodles were, were cheaper uh, than other options. And they added some sort of Thai ingredients, you know, tamarind, palm sugar chilies. But, uh, but I just I thought it was interesting that something I was so familiar with had this kind of uh, background. Right, right. This book offers a, a gateway to some exotic places and not so exotic places. Do you have hopes for how people use the book? I, I think there's a couple ways to use the book, but I, I think one of the primary ones is sort of as armchair travel. It's the kind of book that, you know, if you didn't, wouldn't, it would be unusual to sit down and read it cover to cover. Uh, it's the kind of book you open up to a page and get taken to a different place, maybe to even a different time, and you learn something surprising. You know, I, I we have a story in the book that I love about uh, in, in the hills of Turkey, there are these rhododendrons that have a neurotoxin in them called a grayanotoxin. And when the bees come and collect all of this and make their honey, distills it, and it becomes something called deli ball or, or mad honey. And it's been used medicinally for thousands of years um, but it's also actually, there's an incredible kind of story in, in, from history about how this honey was used as a weapon of war. Uh, back during the Roman Empire, the uh, Pompey, the Roman uh, emperor, was marching tons of soldiers into this region of Turkey to try and defeat this guy named King Mithridates. Uh, and Mithridates refused to submit to the empire. Well, what he did, well, these, these uh, soldiers were marching in. In advance of them, he laid out all of these chunks of mad honey along the road and the soldiers basically couldn't resist <laughs> uh, they picked up this sweet treat they ate it and you know shortly after basically began hallucinating maybe passing out and in big doses it can actually be pretty poisonous and uh and then the army swept in and, and wiped him out and it was a big sack uh so I, I just i love the way that 
foods sort of tie us, uh, you know, place to place around the world and and through history. It's been a really uh, wonderful chance to kind of explore all those threads. So I, I think that's how people should read the book. They should they should use it as a chance to kind of dip in and out of, of the world. And you can use it uh, if you're going to a place. It is great to, like, check it out and say, hey, maybe there's an interesting dish in this region that I, I want to try. I'm going to Chicago. <laughs> give me some alert. <laughs> Dylan, thanks so much for making time to talk. I love the book. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, Gary. It's good to talk to you. That's Dylan Thuris. He's the co-author of the book Gastro Obscura. It's available everywhere books are sold. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. Italian beefs are having an extended moment not like they went anywhere. The hot, flavorful sandwiches have been a Chicago tradition for around 100 years. The exact origins of the Italian beef are a little cloudy. Families with names like Pacelli and Scala are connected to the earliest versions of the popular sandwich. For those of us who grew up in the Chicago area, they've always been around. They've always been popular. Most of us probably don't have to go too far to find a place with them on the menu. But over the past year, it seems like there's been a renewed appreciation of the unassuming Italian beef, both here and outside of northeastern Illinois. Why? Well, there's likely multiple reasons. In my opinion, one is likely the popularity of the critically acclaimed FX series The Bear, which is a fictional show about a talented young chef who takes over his late brother's Italian beef shop. Side note, if you haven't checked it out, do yourself a favor and watch The Bear. Even if you don't like Italian beef, since it's just a small detail that's part of the show. Whether it was the series or not, it feels like more people are talking about Italian beefs. Last week, I came across an article in Bon Appetit magazine highlighting the Chicago area's eight best Italian beefs. I was initially skeptical of a national publication taking on a local specialty, but I read it, and the piece was fantastic, providing history and context while also celebrating some classic beef spots and shedding light on some lesser-known places. The author of the piece is Chicago-based writer Jimena Beltran Quan Q. I recently caught up with her to talk about why these humble sandwiches are such a regional favorite. So how did this piece come about? Is this something you, you pitched to an editor at Bon Appetit? I had reached out about a Mexican dish, which hopefully is coming, so I won't spoil that. And okay. my editor was like, I'm actually very interested in this, but also the new season of The Bear is coming out. Tell me more about your relationship with Italian beef. And at that point, I hadn't seen The Bear. So before I answered, I actually watched the show and binged it. And I was really surprised by many of the similarities that I saw. I'm Mexican and Chinese. I take a lot of pride in my culture. And I'm also a Chicagoan. So when I saw the show, it was really interesting in that they had an homage, subtle homage to this dish as it really pertained to the city and its people, and it was an immigrant story. And that just really resonated very strongly in my own story. I personally have always got Italian beefs on my mind, but I feel like <laughs> uh, I feel like they reached a new level of uh, national attention last summer because of the bear. Did you get that sense too? Or I know you didn't watch it, but did you feel like all of a sudden more people outside of Chicago were aware of Italian beefs? It's so funny because yes, like, and, and, and it was more on the inverse. Um, you know, I was seeing people come home to Chicago or visit and they wanted an Italian beef 
because of the pandemic, I really hadn't traveled outside of Chicago as much as I used to. So I wasn't aware of how much, let's call it, notoriety it was getting. But even in this issue, this print issue of Esquire magazine, editor-in-chief Michael Sebastian, he's a Chicagoan who now lives in New York, talked about how it used to be impossible to find an Italian beef outside of Chicago. And now you're seeing them pop up in New York and other cities in a way that weren't accessible. And even in this piece, while I was working on it, my dad used to work for Bona Beef, actually. So he has a very intimate relationship with beef. And we were talking about, like, when even in the 90s, he went, he told me a funny story about how he was in Canada and he went and asked for an Italian beef and they, like, they laughed at him. They didn't, they didn't know what he was talking about. Outside of Chicago, this is very much a Chicago, maybe a Midwest staple, but truly through and through a Chicagoan dish. Right. It's funny that you. You bring that up because I remember when I was a kid and my aunt moved from Chicago to Florida and I remember her calling me to tell me that she couldn't find any Italian beefs. And I was like nine at the time and I was like, what? Like I just, I had no like concept of like regional food or anything. I just assumed like everyone in the world had access to Italian beefs. It's true. And because you see variations of it, you know, and there's people who are like, oh, it's a French dip. This is a Philly cheese steak sandwich. It is not. It is very much its own thing and its own creation. And if you're from the city, you know, I was born in Mexico City and I grew up in the suburbs and moved to the city when I was 18. You, To your point, you have no concept that this doesn't exist elsewhere because you see it everywhere in Chicago. You can't go more than a few blocks and then see a stand that offers an Italian beef. It's so common. It's such a part of our DNA. And then, as you mentioned, you did write in your piece a little bit about your personal connection. So did you grow up a fan of Italian beef, or was it something that uh, maybe you didn't care for until you got older? Um, No, I actually, it was something that, again, this piece triggered many memories, because when I look, I really, I was hesitant to take, again, it's Italian beef, it's in the name, so am I appropriating culture by writing about Italian beef? But as I looked at it, and In the bear, they talk about it where Sydney, the chef, who's a black woman, she says it's her, she wants to work there because it's her favorite of her father's. This is such an iconic dish that stemmed from an immigrant community, but it is uniquely Chicagoan. It's not an Italian dish by any means. It is a food item that arose out of a scarcity mindset and to need to feed folks. So, Growing up, this was actually a really common dish. And how I started my piece is calling out, like, Chicago is a meat town. It is just a matter. And my belief, my theory is, like, you grow up either a hot dog person, a burger person, or a beef person. And once that is set, that's it. Like, it doesn't matter. You might veer off every now and then. But when you (laughs) go to the counter, you are ordering your order. And the Chicago gets obviously a lot of attention for hot dogs and burgers. But because of the berry, we saw this influx of this third, I would call it like hidden group that is now highly visible because that's the other order. You come in and you have that. So growing up, my dad, my stepdad, my mom, they all always got Italian beef. So I was surrounded by it. I, and I, I thought it was very normal. And everyone ate it different. I mean, I talked about how my mom actually eats it dry, 
with peppers on the side, which is like blasphemy, I would think, because the whole purpose of it is it just being soaked in that jus, that gravy. We call it gravy here. You know, it's jus and fancy cooking terms, but we're Midwest people, so it's really the gravy, the gravy. And um, for me, I eat it. I'm like a traditionalist in the sense that I like to eat it the way the spot, I would say chef, but it's really, you know, it's not a chef kind of place. However the chef prepares it, that's how I want to eat it. That's how I want to try it. Right, right. Whether that's like, you know, how they're they're the pros in my mind, so I want to eat what is being served up to me, and I don't want to go off menu. I just grew up with it. My parents loved it. My mom's South American. My dad, a product of Czech and German immigrants, both loved it dry. I love it wet. <laughs> and then now my, my wife is not an Italian beef person. She's a hot dog person, so... I'm kind of you like, see? it's going to be a battle for my son's soul. You know, we'll see what which direction he goes. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Chicago-based writer Jimena Beltran Quan Q about all things Italian beef. For this piece, obviously, you have like this already existing deep knowledge, but did you have to do some additional research in the field, tasting a bunch of Italian beefs? Uh, you know, I did, and I took this as an opportunity to really reconnect with my dad. He recently came into town in Chicago, and he hadn't been back since the pandemic, but he also had just hadn't been back in probably almost 10 years. And he wasn't a huge part of my life growing up, so this was actually the most time we had spent together as adults. So it was really fun to also just get to know him and hear his stories, because as I mentioned, he was a driver for Buena Beef. He grew up on this dish. And to him, in the months leading up before he came to visit me, he lives in Austin now, all he kept texting me about was, I just want to eat an Italian beef. I just want a beef. Let's make sure we get a beef. So I was like, okay, this will be fun. We'll do this research. So there, it's such an interesting dish, again, because there's not a lot of variation to it, truly. The places that have made it and topped my list, which were, Al's, and I did the list in an order of chronological order from when they opened. So it's Al's Beef, Portillo's, Buena Beef. You got your heavy hitters, and there's a reason why they're popular. They're consistent. And the biggest thing I heard from people is also that the recipes didn't change. So this is not a dish that has a ton of variations. In fact, I would argue that if you're veering off too much from what the Italian beef is, then you're not going to seek a lot of popularity because what really lies in its secret sauce, let's call it, is truly this ability to have stood the test of time. And those are the places that stay. So, like, I actually grew up where I would go to Johnny's Beef pretty frequently. It's across the street from the grocery store, uh, fresh time that my mom and I would go to. And so we'd stop at Johnny's Beef. Then there was, but the one, the spot that actually really surprised me which a friend, Gabe Ramirez, who's also on the radio at BME6, mentioned, is that Odges in, I think it's Wicker Park, Bucktown. It's on Damon, just south of Armitage. This is like the real-life beef story. The man who currently runs it, his name is Eddie, he planned to go to culinary school uh, out of high school, and his father owned this stand. And his father got sick and eventually passed away, and so Eddie took over this business. It is really a diamond in the rough kind of spot because unless you know, again, this place has been around for, I think, over 50 years. So it has tried and true regulars. So much so that it used to be a cash-only spot, but because there's so many regulars, 
they have an ATM and they take credit cards, but most of the people show up with cash in hand because they're used to it. And they come from all over the Midwest to eat at this place. And if you don't know food, you just know it tastes good. You like it. It's good. It's consistent. If you look closer, you'll see that, and again, as a food writer, I'm used to spotting some of these things that he's using some really high-quality ingredients. This is not like a cheap little stand. This is like a place that has a very high-quality ingredients, high-end cooking techniques that is being applied to fast-service food. I think one of the city's most underrated spots, truly, when you're looking at the food landscape, that this is a man who is just really in love with food. Eddie loves food. He wanted to study food, and he didn't, but he owns a food stand, so he is, he. Rem- I forgot the chef's name and the bear, the guy who does, like, the fancy desserts, who gets excited when the... Oh, yeah, Marcus? New- yeah. Oh, yeah, so the new chef comes in, yes. He's like that. He's trying new cooking techniques so the dessert he's using maldon salt which is like very the most expensive salt you can use he uses uh slaggle farm meats which is the top restaurants in chicago use those so it's a place that i didn't really have at the top of my list because i was unaware it's truly a neighborhood spot it is only available for lunch so it doesn't have evening hours it's not a late night spot and it's not open on sunday so you have to really be intentional about going there, and it is worth a visit. Yeah, Hodges was one of the places on your list that I, I haven't been to, so I put that on my list. And one of the other surprising ones that you included was Beard Award-winning Kasama, which is this really like popular restaurant known for its Filipino fusion cuisine, but I didn't even know they, they have an Italian beef on the menu. Listen, and I think that's like... You can't know unless you are truly a beef fan because it's listed as a combo sandwich. Uh-huh. So for the untrained eye, a combo sandwich is a variation of the Italian beef. A traditional beef is sirloin or chuck roast sliced very thinly with jardinera on top. The combo actually includes an Italian sausage buried under the Italian beef, and I laugh because when my dad came into town and we got a beef and he got a combo, he actually opened his sandwich. We were on the patio at Bueno Beef, and he was like, oh, they forgot the Italian sausage. And he was so excited to eat it, but I was like, no, go back to the counter and tell them they forgot. And he's like, okay, and he went, and he's like, ha, 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 I couldn't see it. It's in there. They pointed it out. <laughs> Whoops. So it, it truly is hidden. There's so much meat. So again, if you don't, Kasama is really well known for its pastry items uh so it's morning portion it is known for its prefix dinner and a and very chicago manner i have a garbage truck going by so i apologize for the noise because is known for its pastry items in the breakfast menu and throughout the day it is also known for its prefix menu in the evening which is i believe about 200 225 dollars per person however that combo sandwich is just being outshined by its other very shiny accolades. So you really have to be an Italian beef person to know <laughs> it, to find it, to order it. But once you do, it's fantastic. And ultimately, you know, it speaks to the city's roots because, like you mentioned, it is a Filipino-based restaurant. Um, and Chef Tim Flores, I believe, yes, Tim Flores, is grew up in Cicero. 
So Cicero is a suburb outside of Chicago where it is in spitting distance of some of the top Italian beef places, Satchel's, Johnny's, obviously Portillo's is close by, Buena Beef is close by, Al's is close by. So it talks about this immigrant story where this person likely grew up in proximity to this very, I'm going to guess that Tim, his order isn't the hot dog or burger, it's the beef. And he took his take on it included cultural elements and really elevated the sandwich and again i mentioned earlier that you don't see a lot of variation in italian beef because it is something that the longer it's been in business the more people know it as being good and consistent and delicious there there aren't too many different ways to eat a beef so the fact that this dish has been changed and has been elevated really speaks to the cultural nuances of Chicago and its immigrant community and how they repurpose. Um, and I would say not just repurpose and are inspired by the, the different things in the city, but also how they make it their own and it's embraced because people who do know it's like a, if you know, you know, type of menu item love this dish, despite it not being in the traditional Italian beef combo offerings. Right, right. A couple of quick notes. Uh, I don't know if you've watched season two of The Bear. It just dropped, but Kasama is featured in one of the episodes, so there's kind of like this tie-in oh, there. I didn't. I didn't. I, I mean, it just came out yesterday. I know. Gary, when was I supposed to watch it? I had an Italian beef last night and watched some of The Bear to prepare for our conversation. Ah, so. uh, okay. Um, I was going to watch it tonight. Okay, I won't. That was the only spoiler I'll I'll give you. But uh, you were alluding to it, and I was thinking, you know, there's kind of this uh, line of thought that, like, for some people, there's like no bad pizza. Like even the worst pizza still tastes good. And I'm a big fan of Italian beef, so there are there are bad Italian beef, so I won't go that far. But I enjoy <laughs> a lot of the, the beefs that you included on your list. I have my my favorite, and it's the one that. I grew up with, so it's the one that I first tried. So that's you know that's just what I think of. But like if I go to one of the other places, it's it's still where's good. Where's that? I want to know where. That's what I'm getting at. Is like I don't want to get like hate mail because I feel like it. There is kind of this contentiousness. You know, I've seen fights break out online when anybody does kind of like <laughs> a, a ranking of best Italian beefs, which are you know, those rankings can be fun, but. I've seen people get very, like, aggressive. So I was just going to say, like, you know, I like the way the format of you just highlighting eight in chronological order. And so that way there's, like, no dispute because, you know, who's to really say what's the best uh, Italian beef? It's, like, what you grew up with. But uh, so I was just curious if, like, yeah, you had run into any beef debates. I have, but you still haven't answered the question. What's your favorite beef? Spot? Well, I know because I said I don't want to get any like hate mail because no. if I say it, people are going to be like, "Ah, oh, you don't know what you're talking about." So, in all honesty, my favorite beef is Portillo's because that's that's what I grew up with. I grew up in the western suburbs, and that's where my parents would take me, and I it's stayed. They don't deviate. It's always like comes out the same way. I do really like Johnny's in Elmwood Park. That's become like um, once I got old enough to kind of explore on my own, I went there. So I'd say those two are neck and neck. But if um, I had to, to choose, I'd, I'd choose a Portillo's Italian beef. Yeah, like, listen, again, there is a reason these places are in business. There is a reason why they're all over. I think it's really, you know, I did have reservations. I actually flagged it for my editor, like, there are a lot of chain places that are considered the best, and I'm going to include them on the list because the, it's 
people are going to be upset, but to your point, I mean, again, like, these are popular places. There's a reason they exist. Demand is high. They're consistent. There isn't a lot of variation on the beef dish. And on the flip side of that is so true. You're going to love the place that you experience at first. So if you ask another Chicagoan, they're going to have a different experience on this. I did a bit of both where I really picked my places that I like, but I also talked to a lot of people. And I will say among, I did, I got hate mail in my DMs so of people said, telling me I don't know anything. Oh, man. <laughs> so it was very real. Um, but for instance, I talked to a lot of people and uh, Joe Flam, who's on Top Chef, loves Al's beef. I spoke to the Frontera culinary director, also an Al's Beef guy. There were so many people who cited Al's as their favorite. There were so many people who cited Portillo's as their favorite. Again, there is validity in these chains and what they're offering. And you can argue, too, that because of those chains, the small little pop-up places are able to exist because they're able to offer it. And it's not a foreign item. It allows them to survive. Completely agree. People can check out your piece at bonappetit.com. So are you are you going to say what your favorite Italian beef is? I will say, huh, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity eater. This is what I tell everybody. <laughs> I will eat the blandest food possible. I will eat expensive high-end and anything in between. I am an equal opportunity eater. I will say the one place that I was really excited about that surprised me I'm not often surprised. I'm very curious about things, but I'm not often surprised was Odges. That was one that really caught my attention. That's one that I'll keep my eye on to see how they do and what they do. When you're look, you're curious, when you're, you might love Portillo's, you might love Johnny's or Satchel's, but if you're looking to try something new, go to Odges. Jimena, thanks so much for uh, making time to talk with me. Of course. Thank you for having me. This is fun. That's Chicago-based writer Jimena Beltran Quan Q. Her article, The Eight Best Italian Beef Sandwiches in Chicago, is in the current issue of Bon Appetit magazine. You can find more online at bonappetit.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Happy Independence Day. Thanks for listening.